Good morning, everyone. Pastor Rick is taking a few days of vacation, getting the morning off, so I'm filling in for him today. For those of you who are visitors, welcome. I'm Bill Walls. I'm an elder here at the church. The Bible text under our consideration this morning is found in the Old Testament, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. It's a story of Naaman, the Syrian army commander who was cured of leprosy and became a believer of the God of Israel. We'll be covering verses 1 through 5, which paint a background taking place 800 years before Christ. Three observations will be made. One, we will see the fundamental problem of man. Then we will look at the only solution to that problem, and finally, we'll draw some application to our own lives. That shouldn't go unnoticed that worship services mentioning this Naaman fellow have been historically a little risky. If you remember in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, when Jesus referenced this story during a synagogue service, the Jews became so upset that they carried Jesus out of town and brought them to a hill with the intention to throw him off a cliff. This might make some of you pause and think, huh, I never even knew that was an optional way to end a church service. But you have to admit, participating in a violent mob uprising during church would make for a memorable day. Personally, my hope is you won't require my being tossed over a cliff to make this interesting. My hope is the Holy Spirit will make it interesting for you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, please use your Holy Spirit to open your word, to guide my words, and to touch our hearts. So what is this fundamental problem of man, and where do we find it in 2 Kings? Let's open our Bibles to chapter 5, looking in verses 1 through 5. Starting with verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. I'm going to be drawing some parallels between this military man of Syria and all men and women. And by the way, Naaman was from Syria, not Assyria. Syria was the name of a powerful empire much larger than 
Assyria was the name of a powerful empire much larger than Syria. Syria was and is a country located north of Israel. In, in some of your Bibles, it may be referred to as Aram. Naaman was a valuable man to the king and to his country. So he was probably considered indispensable. And we get some insider information from the Holy Spirit as to what made him indispensable. When it says the Lord had given him military victories. Maybe fighting against Israel, maybe against Assyria. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. But we are told that he is valuable. We are told that it was God who made him valuable. And I want to bring to your notice how these facts are laid out, the order. I don't think it's by accident. We're told right up front that Naaman was a great man. Now the story has our attention. We're dealing with somebody important here, not just some ordinary person. And then the next piece of information, a bombshell is dropped. He also has leprosy. So we find ourselves thinking, hmm, that is a rough situation. First his value, then his problem. In that order. Let me give you an example to show you why this is important. Let's say after church, I come up to you and I say, about my best friend from my high school years? Yeah, he got sick a couple of days ago and died. And we're all nice folks. I know you would offer a consoling word. Mm, sorry to hear that. But let's face it, because you know it's true, by dinner time, you would have forgotten all about the conversation we had. But on the other hand, what if I said, hey, did you hear about your best friend from your high school years? Ah, now you're interested. This is important. Yeah, he got sick and died. You'd want to know what the sickness was, where he was when it happened, how his family is dealing with it. And by dinner time, you may already have plane reservations to attend his funeral. You see the difference? First, the scripture makes Naaman valuable. And after it's got our attention, then we're hit with the bad news. Of course, and back to our story, at the time, Naaman didn't know about the Lord's involvement establishing his value. In fact, I can picture him thinking to himself, what an example of courage I must be, inspiring such bravery in my men. Without ever suspecting it wasn't him at all, it was the Lord who made the enemy flee before his own army. Or maybe he thought, wow, that battle where we attacked on two fronts, pure genius. Not knowing once again it was the Lord who put the idea in his head, which resulted in an overwhelming now let me draw a parallel between Naaman and you in this issue of value. It's God that has also made you valuable. 
He did this by making you in his image and giving each one of us an indestructible eternal soul. It goes all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis. It's the first thing God says about man. In verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, someone might be thinking, that's all theology in making us in his image. What does it really mean? How do I know that God values me? I've never accomplished anything. I've never been a victorious leader. How do I really know these things? And that's fair. So let me give you some evidence that you are valuable to God. And this is important because if a person doesn't believe they're valuable to God, then they will never understand the motive behind God offering to save them, to save their souls. So here, see if this makes sense. I think it's reasonable to assume and to assume that we can draw conclusions about what's important to a person by reviewing their personal calendar, by observing how they occupy their time. Jesus in the Gospels had a ministry that lasted about three years, and he had a fair amount to accomplish. Restoring sight to the blind, making the lame walk, cleansing lepers, making the deaf hear, raising the dead, preaching the good news to the poor, not to mention fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies and discipling a group of 12 men who were sometimes slow learners to carry the message of the gospel to the world. And that doesn't even include his primary mission, to die a horrible, painful death for our sins. In other words, he had a busy schedule. But when we look back at his appointment calendar, what do we find? He met with a man known as Legion, a man who was possessed by thousands of demons, and that man became a believer in Christ. Jesus took the time to save him because he considered him valuable. Jesus met with a woman at a well who in the past had been married five times and at that time was living with someone who was not her husband. She became a believer. Jesus took time to save her. And finally, he took time during his final hours on earth to discuss the future with a man pinned to an adjacent cross. Can you just imagine all that must have been going on in Jesus' mind as he was taking on the punishment for the sins of the world when this robber initiated a conversation about the afterlife? But Jesus valued the man, and so he took the time to prop the door to heaven open for him. Surely, if we've witnessed Jesus valuing a demon-possessed man, a woman who was living immorally, a robber being crucified, we can be convinced that Jesus values us too. And this is not even to mention John 3.16. That begins with, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that's the first parallel between Naaman and us. God caused this Naaman to have indispensable value, and God has caused each of us to have indispensable value. And now the bombshell, the second parallel. Along with Naaman's value, he had a problem. He had leprosy, a severe case. 
likewise, we have a problem. Our sin nature, a severe case. Someone might ask, how do you know Naaman's leprosy was severe? Well, in at least three ways. First, the young servant girl takes notice and shows concern. It's hardly likely a child would take notice if the disease was mild or if it was covered by clothing. Second, we know it was severe by the large payment described in verse 5 to purchase a cure. In today's money, the gold and silver would be the equivalent of around $5 million. That's a lot of money to buy a cure. And we finally know the disease was serious because at the end of the story, the prophet Elisha's servant is punished for bad behavior. In verse 27, it says, Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he, the servant, went out from Elijah's presence a leper, like snow. The servant was cursed with what Naaman had been cured of, his skin being white as snow. The servant wasn't punished with a trivial case of leprosy. You get the sense the servant is paying a high price for his disobedience. So Naaman had a bad case of leprosy. And to further develop this parallel, if you've been a churchgoer for very long, you'll be familiar with the concept that leprosy represents two things in the Bible. It's a real disease, but it also serves as a metaphor for sin. Naaman was a carrier of both. He had the actual disease of leprosy and the metaphor. He was infected with a sin nature just like us. So we have a picture of this Naaman who the Bible describes as valuable to his king, but also having an incurable disease. And we have the parallel situation of our own lives, valuable to the king, God, but also having an incurable disease, sin, a disease that prevents us from ever entering into God's presence. It's a difficult dilemma, isn't it? How's it going to get fixed? I'm sure Naaman tried every cure available 3,000 years ago, applying medicines to the diseased area, herbal drinks perhaps, appealing to pagan gods, but the leprosy just continued to kill him. No doubt he was in a low place of depression and desperation because how else can we explain this great military man taking seriously the advice of a lowly servant girl. But here she is, offering one final hope. And God allows this approach with people all the time, doesn't he? Lots of salvations began from a point of depression and desperation. Remember John Wesley, the famous evangelist, writing in the 1730s after returning to England from a mission, missionary service in Georgia? where he couldn't find assurance that he was a child of God. He wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? And Charles Spurgeon, who became known as the Prince of Preachers, used these words to describe his years before being saved. 
I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. And that's desperation. So Naaman's at his lowest point, and the young servant girl makes a statement that could very well be a message summarizing the entire Bible. And this is the main point of this morning's sermon, so don't miss it. In verse 3, she says to Naaman's wife, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now, how is this a summary of the entire Bible? Remember, we're dealing with parallels here. And we have good grounds to be doing so. Remember in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, while on the way to Emmaus, after his resurrection, when Jesus conducted a Bible study with two walking along the road, it says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Ah, so all the scriptures, all of the Old Testament is filled with things about Jesus, even 2 Kings chapter 5, where we find ourselves today. It's remarkable to me. It's almost unbelievable that the Holy Spirit would use this young servant girl, a girl whose name we aren't even given, to make such a profound observation concerning the cure to the fundamental problem of man from the time of the Garden of Eden. Let's break this down a little further, what the servant girl said. When she said, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. The prophet in Samaria, when she spoke these words to Naaman's wife, was the prophet Elisha, who had undeniably performed a number of miracles, including raising the dead. The word Samaria refers to a location in Israel. The girl wishes somehow if Naaman could just connect with Elisha in Israel, then Naaman could be cured. This probably doesn't sound too much different from words you've uttered concerning someone you cared about in a desperate situation where there doesn't seem to be any other hope for them except Jesus. When everything else has been tried and failed and you find yourself saying, if I could just get so-and-so to the prophet from Israel, he would cure him of his sin. Of course, you are referring to Jesus. And on what basis do you ever think such a thing? Because if you've been truly born again and you yourself have been cured by the prophet from Israel, then you know from experience that it's a real and lasting cure. You can reflect back how you were prior to being saved, the kinds of despicable things you were involved in, your addictions, your inner thought life, your disdain for God's word and his commands. But once you were connected to the prophet from Israel, everything began to change and continues to change through the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a, help, a self-help program where you finally dug deep and found the fortitude to put your life on a better path. Not at all. You were, as it says, born again. A new start. 
So you know from your own experience how powerful the cure is for those willing to turn to Jesus. And you say to yourself, would that I could just connect my son or my daughter or my friend to the prophet for, from Israel. He would cure them. Now, but someone might say, this girl didn't have any seminary training. She was probably completely uneducated. Her making a profound theological statement. Come on. And you're right. All she knew was there was a problem. And there is an answer to the problem. And she wanted to connect the problem to the solution. Basic no-frills evangelism. Sin kills, Jesus cures. Simple as that. I can't help wonder sometimes if we make evangelism too complicated, too much apologetics before we deliver the good news. In the year before I was born again, well-meaning Christians spent hours and hours trying to convince me the Bible was reliable, that the theory of evolution wasn't valid, that abortion was murder, that there's a real place called hell, and so on. I wasn't convinced of any of it, never even close to being convinced. But as soon as I was born again by being connected to Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit, I believed everything that we had endlessly debated over without any further discussion. I'm not saying there's no place for Christian apologetics that can be very effective in strengthening someone's existing faith. But the cure is in Jesus and in the indwelling Holy Spirit, not in winning spirited debates. Let's move on to some application. Whom should we be working to connect with the prophet from Israel? The first person on the list is ourselves. Do we need to be connected to Jesus? In other words, are we actually born again? Remember the John Wesley quote, I went to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? If John Wesley could own up to this personal awareness of his status with Christ, and he was a famous evangelist, then surely we should be willing to make an honest assessment of whether we are actually born again. Ask yourself these questions. Do you have any enjoyment from reading the Bible? When others converse about new things they've found while reading the Bible, does it bore you? Can you look back five years and see any Christian growth? Do you still enjoy chronic sin? Do you have any concern for the lost? Are you delighted when someone else accepts Christ? If you landed on the wrong side of too many of these questions, and you have always felt that way, then you need to let the servant girl's words burn in your conscience. If only you were with the prophet from Israel, he would cure you of your sin. Remember, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. A lot of things can be faked in life. We can pretend to be rich. We can pretend to be kind. We can pretend to be brave. But pretending to be a Christian is like mounting a ticket ticking time ball, time bomb, time 
wall and pretend that it's a clock. The timer is eventually going to run out. Judgment Day is eventually coming around. The next connection to Christ we should be concerned with is family and friends. And I won't spend much time on this because Christians should naturally be inclined to evangelize this group. But we can draw some guidance from these verses in 2 Kings. Be careful that you're not overly accommodating, that you're not being a magic genie. In storybooks, genies pop out of lamps and grant three wishes. But you don't stop there. You grant all the wishes because your personality can't bear to watch someone going through a trial. Remember Naaman's desperate case of leprosy driving him to go into hostile territory and search for a cure? Stop always intervening for your loved ones, especially right at the point when God may be driving them to their needs. Stay in your lane. Get back in your lamp. Also from 2 Kings, we learned that if you want to connect your family or friends to Christ, you have to be a credible witness. Consider the young girl in the story. She made a suggestion, and the next thing you know, $5 million in gold and silver was rounded up. Imagine if the girl was a lazy servant, a liar, a thief. Naaman's wife would have simply ignored any of her suggestions, but apparently she had established a solid record of credibility. Before we talk about the word of God, we need to ensure our word is as good as gold. Moving on from family and friends, I'm going to jump to a group of people who are almost entirely neglected from our evangelism concerns, our enemies. I didn't spend any time researching it, but I'd be very surprised if there are any Christian outreach organizations that are focused on connecting your enemies to Jesus. There's the medical missionaries, the Bible translation missions, missions for poor children living in third, third world countries, and so on, but I've never heard of a Christian organization with a specific goal of helping you get the gospel to your enemies. And I'm not meaning national enemies on a geopolitical level. I'm speaking on a smaller scale. But first, let me address two questions. Why should we have an interest in this potential mission field? And who are my enemies? read some verses from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, using the Phillips translation. This is Jesus speaking, starting with verse 27. But I say to all of you who will listen to me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who treat you badly. And then picking up with verse 32, if you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. 
And if you do good to only those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. It's pretty clear, isn't it? The real work, the real credit to be gained is in the circle of our enemies. A lot of the other activity we perform is just kind of expected. Imagine, if you will, having an employee in any field of work. It doesn't matter. Imagine the employee not doing a bit of work. And you approach him at the end of the day. Hey, you didn't do anything today. What's going on? And the employee looks up from his chair with a hurt look on his face. And responds with, what do you mean? I drove here this morning. I arrived on time. I've been in my office all day. I ate lunch at noon. I was friendly with the other staff. I answered the phone when it rang. How can you say I didn't do anything today? Wouldn't you have to agree that anybody could have performed at that level? And I think this is what Jesus is saying in regard to our evangelism efforts. Do you want to see real work? Do you want to see real credit? Then consider your enemy and ask the young girl's question. How can I connect that person to the prophet from Israel? He could cure them of their sin. This is where we become most like Christ. And as it says in verse 35, your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. This is where rarely, if ever, consider evangelism. Okay, then who is our enemy? We need to identify the field of harvest, don't we? It's not difficult. It's the people who we spend time thinking and speaking badly about. It's as simple as that. And with the 24-hour news cycle and the internet, it seems like the enemy's list grows nearly every day. We have government leaders intentionally ripping apart the foundation of our country. We have people who promote educating young children in grossly immoral perversity. There's advocates of critical race theory, which is nothing more than Marxism. People pushing gender-affirming care, which is nothing more than the destruction of children physically, mentally, and spiritually. People pushing for more abortions, expanding LGBTQ privileges, even mentioned your neighbor, your workmate, or your relative who seems to have it out for you for no apparent reason. Surely out of this list, we have at least one enemy to populate your mission field, at least one person whom we can ask ourselves, how can I get that person connected to Jesus to cure him of his sin? This is where we are doing more than the bare minimum. Doing this is not to gain extra credit, it's to gain some credit. We are beginning to act like sons and daughters of the Most High when we start thinking this way. Wait a minute, somebody's wondering right now, is he advocating looking the other way when our enemy is causing harm and perhaps even breaking the law? Not at all. Ignoring bad behavior doesn't help anyone. Bad behavior has to be dealt with. Remember Proverbs 25, 26. 
like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Psalm 12, 8. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. Think, if you will, of the toddler who is also a tyrant, a child who is selfish and demanding, never obeying the suggestions, and I use that word intentionally, the suggestions of their parents. If that child's poor behavior is simply ignored, if there's no discipline going on in the home, does the situation magically go away? Or does it become continually more intolerable as the child realizes, I can get away with anything with these dupes? And likewise, illegal or immoral behavior that is simply overlooked in society, the harm actually grows that way, not goes the way. But it's at moments like these that we need to flip our thought process that would normally be along the lines of, we need to stay far away from that spoiled kid and instead begin to think, how can we get that child connected to Christ? One way might be to become involved with a children's evangelism ministry where children are introduced to the Bible. Another way might be to add that parent and that child to your permanent prayer list. We don't want to pretend like bad behavior doesn't exist, but we need to keep the perspective of an eternal timeline. And we need to keep in mind that we were just like that or worse before meeting Jesus. So when government leaders seem to be doing everything exceedingly poorly, by all means, vote them out of office during election season campaign for their opponent, contribute to their opponent, exercise all the rights you have as a citizen of this country. But at the end of the day, keep in mind that the person whom you are rightly opposing for public office still needs to be saved. The battle for his soul is not fought in the voting booth. It's waged in the heavenly realms against spiritual forces of evil fight that battle with prayer. I challenge you. I challenge myself in our prayers to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Then we will be children of the Most High. Let's finish up. The fundamental problem of man from all the way back in the book of Genesis is this leprosy-like disease, this sin nature. In chapter 1 of Genesis, God creates man and woman. He creates them valuable. He loves them. But by chapter 3, Adam and Eve, by their own actions, are infected with a sin nature that they've passed to every succeeding generation. But God never stopped loving us. And just as with Naaman, God provides a cure. The cure for Naaman and the cure for the rest of us is found with the prophet from Israel. Salvation has always originated from Israel. So let's take the words of the young servant girl out with us this morning and connect every person we can to this Jesus, this cure, to our friends, relatives, enemies, 
if necessary, even yourself. Let's pray. Father, please help us connect people to Christ wherever we are. Open our hearts, Lord, to not just our relatives, but also to our enemies. And Lord, if there is anybody hearing this message today who is not your son or daughter, Lord, please open their hearts to this young servant girl's message.